Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. To support the show and receive weekly grief guidance from me, monthly group grief support calls, and the first look at upcoming books and projects, become a patron now at patreon.com slash Shelby Forsythia. Just $3 a month gets you access to everything there is to see on Patreon, plus connection to a beautiful group of gravers just like you. Unlock grief support now for $3 a month and support this show at patreon.com slash Shelby Forsythia. Thank you so much this week to AB for your support. What if you could improve your relationship to grief a little bit every day? If you're looking for comforting words and practical exercises condensed into one small paragraph each day, check out my new book, Your Grief, Your Way. It's a non-religious daily devotional that helps you get in touch with your heart and your grief for a full 366 days. Find Your Grief, Your Way now on Amazon, Audible, IndieBound, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere else you buy books. And stay tuned to the end of this episode for a special excerpt from Your Grief, Your Way. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. Today, I'm talking to social worker Christina Cipriano of Bo's Place in Houston, Texas, about the importance of offering grief support in Spanish. We're talking about how death can bring families closer together, how the cultural value of family pride can help Latinos grieve, and why it's so important to express grief in a first language, or the language of the heart. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide and author who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to create a world where grief is welcomed, normalized, and even embraced. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi there, grief growers. Thank you so much for joining me here today on Coming Back. I am jumping around. I'm on the edge of my seat um, because in less than one week, my new book, Your Grief, Your Way, will be live and in the world. September 29th, Tuesday is the day. There is still time to pre-order the book and join the launch team on Facebook if that's something that resonates with you. Members of the launch team get access to not only a free digital copy of the book, an advanced review copy, um, they, in exchange for writing a review on Amazon.com, also receive access to an exclusive book launch party with me. And this is happening on launch day, September 29th at 5 p.m. Pacific. So if you would like a free digital copy of Your Grief Your Way in exchange for writing a review and helping me get the word out about the book, as well as admission to this exclusive launch party on September 29th, I would still so love to have you. You can search the Your Grief Your Way launch team on Facebook, and you can find a link to that in the show notes. This week, I also announced five new 90-minute Zoom workshops for grief surrounding uh, specific topics that you all have been bringing me for 
months, if not years now. You can see all of them on my website under the events tab, but the two that I want to share with you today are the ones coming up this Friday and Saturday, September 25th and 26th. The first workshop is one called Release the Pain of Guilt, which is all about processing guilt and allowing ourselves to be released from the physical, mental, emotional, even spiritual grip of guilt after loss. It's something that's very haunting. And so how do we turn around and talk to that ghost and say, hey, I appreciate you, but my space is off limits to you now. So kind of more or less setting boundaries with guilt, but very much in these workshops, they're not structured. They're not a PowerPoint presentation. You won't be bored with slides. Um, it's literally an opportunity for me to see your face, hear your voice, hear your grief story in your own words and bring what you're struggling with to the table where I can work it out with you in real time. So it's very much uh, guidance in real life as it's happening. Yes. Um, the second workshop that's happening is Saturday morning, uh, September 26th. It's called Sit and Stay in Painful Emotions. This is more about learning to physically and emotionally tolerate really hard emotions and grief, like anxiety, sadness, despair, numbness. And these are things that um, so many grievers come to me with. They're like, I don't know how to hold this in my body. I don't know how to contain this without feeling as if I am going to die. And so really, Really, the focus of that workshop is going to be how do we hold or become a container, not only that's big enough for these emotions, but perhaps one that's deep enough also. And again, this is one where you're showing up in the space and sharing your grief story with me. So while the topic is sit and stay in painful emotions, what that looks like and exactly how to sit and stay there will be very unique to you. And I can help you do that through this workshop. If either one of these resonates with you, or if you'd like to see the whole lineup of 90 minute workshops, and there are more to come grief growers, uh, you can visit the link in the show notes for this episode or go to shelbyforsythia.com slash events. And lastly, before we get to the interview today, I want to remind everyone living in the United States to register to vote. Yesterday was National Voter Registration Day and or check your voter registration, especially if you've recently moved. Uh, The presidential election coming up in November is direly important to say the least. And our hearts and our futures and our griefs are in the hands of whoever wins. And trust me, I would love to be a person who says that I don't care who you vote for. I would love it if both of our presidential candidates were that good. But unfortunately, time and experience have shown us that they are not, and that is not a reality. So I hope you will join me in unenthusiastically casting a vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris this fall. And please, grief growers, if you can vote by mail, do it. Um, the coronavirus pandemic is continuing heartbreakingly to kill hundreds each week and anything that we can do to stay safe and stay home while we exercise our right to vote is vital. And if you're opting out of voting this year, if you're saying politics are just not for me, I am so sick and tired of the rigmarole, I hear you and I urge you to reconsider. If grief is something you give a crap about, please vote. There is grief deeply embedded in politics. There has been for years and years and years and years and years. And there are politics deeply embedded in the experience of grief. So cast a vote for president and research your local elections as well. Your water, your schools, your parks, and your communities are deeply impacted by who you choose to represent you on a ballot. You can check your voter registration and register to vote at vote.org, and you can find a link to that website in the show notes. And now, my conversation with Christina Cipriano. 
I am really delighted and stoked even to introduce you to Christina Cipriano, who uh, came to us through the avenue of uh, Lindsay Whistle Fenton, who we interviewed last season for Speaking Grief, uh, the documentary on how to talk to people, friends and family, and even perfect strangers about grief. Um, and Christina's work is really vital in that she runs um, kind of a division of a grief center called Bo's Place in Texas for Spanish programming. And this struck me because in grief, especially in America and the westernized world, I think we think of grief support as only in English. But when we can put grief support into a language that we know or a first language or a primary language, we get to take our brains out of the equation of trying to translate what we're feeling and just say uh, what's on our heart. So Christina, welcome to the show. And if you could start us off with your loss story or your experience with grief as you know it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I actually, in, in my life experience, the death of a number of close family members, uh, starting at the age of seven, my cousin died um, at the while well, he was five years old, and we were very close to one another. Um, it was a very traumatic death. My first encounter with death itself, following that, about four months later, uh, my aunt and godmother died. Um, so very subsequent loss uh, and, and death uh, all before second grade. So it was quite a pivotal time in my life. And I've been able to, through the support of my family, but also um, I think relying on mentors throughout my life, being able to process their uh, both of those deaths. But really what has been monumental in that regard is how many times throughout my life I've continued to go back to that year um, and those couple of months and how time stands still even now I think we're at um, maybe 26 years later just about and on both of their death anniversaries it feels as though time stands still like nothing else really matters on those days and it continues to tie me to this work too, to, to know that um, time, uh, there's a saying, you know, time heals all wounds, but in some regards, you, you grieve to the extent that you love. And as a seven-year-old, it can tell you at this point, um, it was some deep love because it's, it's, I can still feel it. There's still days um, specifically on their death anniversaries and big milestones that uh, I go back to that time and um, wonder what their life would be and, and still what would my life be with them. And, yeah, and I think um, that never ends. And I'm glad that you spoke to that because there is this sense that time stands still when our loved ones still aren't here. Because, I mean, we continue to mark time going forward. Like, we, what other choice do we have but to continue to live um, after somebody we love dies and these dates come up or these moments come up or these uh, milestones come up? And we're like, Whoa. it's like the, somebody hits that sound on the record player. And it's like time is standing still once again. And I like this thing that you spoke to, too, about um, the year that changed your life. And I think this is common for so many grievers is there was a span of six months, a year. For me, it was four years of just like loss, 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 loss. And it's still the thing that like almost butterfly effect. It's like if this hadn't happened, my life would have taken a totally different direction. And I wonder how you continue continue to honor that as you get older of like, if this hadn't happened, um, my life wouldn't look like it does right now. I wonder if there's um, 
resentment there or even a kind of gratitude or a mix of both? Um, I think more than anything, it showed me what resiliency looks like. It showed me what my own capacity for love is. And it has shown me um, really what I think um, adversity brings forth in someone. And so I think in, in that regard, um, it it has brought me to the work that I do now. And I, and I firmly believe that it's the reason why I'm so passionate um, about working with our Spanish speaking families. And not not just because my own family speaks Spanish and it's my first language, but because I know firsthand what that looks like, and, and at least for my family and, and our own experience. And I wonder what would our lives have been like had there been a Bo's place that offered Spanish language groups in 1996 in Houston, as opposed to relying on our family, which we did, but each one of us was screaming. There wasn't a part of our family that wasn't and what that meant for us. And so um, I think if anything, it's, it's more so it is the fuel of my fire for the work that I do. It's uh, seeing my cousins walk their grief journey of experiencing the death of a sibling and a mother and and they are primarily the reason why I do this work because I, I I've seen what happens when you don't get the support that you need and trying to help navigate and and at the same time eradicate uh, solo grievers in that regard. Um, so I I'll say it it not that I'm grateful that they died, uh, but more so the experiences and the lessons learned and what I learned about myself and the fire that it feels the passion for the work that I do is all encompassing. And so it's, it's really hard to imagine my life without the singular event um, or this, these months to the same extent, right? Cause life would look completely different. And I, I sit back and I guess now as you're talking, I wonder, would I even be in the mental health field? Would I be an accountant mm -hmm. and doing, you know, number, not, not, not to say anything about the accountants. Um, <laughs> we're just really different worlds. Uh, and so it, I, I guess in that regard, just, yeah, how different my life would be. Would I be this, I, I doubt I would be this in tune with grief in and of itself. Yeah. And I think that's really appropriate. Um, to say and in some ways it's like I would have known myself as a different person too mm -hmm. if I had not experienced grief um myself like my self-perception of who I am and how I show up in the world and the relationships that I form the languages that I speak and all the other things um that are associated would have come to me differently as well if you had been an accountant if I had been an ad executive like all these kind of like alternative parallel um universes that we could have gone down and so there's not necessarily a gratitude for grief um but our ability to imagine any other way. Yeah, it's, it's hard to do. Um, I definitely want to get into this uh, kind of how you got where you are mm -hmm. and what you, what you craved or wanted in 1996, because I, I heard this phrase once, or maybe there was a diagram in a book that I read where it's like when grieving people are looking to support um, 
one of the best things they can do for themselves is lean out to community resources, to things in the neighborhood that are helpful, and sometimes to lean in on family, friends, depending on the person that you lost who's grieving. It's almost like we're all trying to stand on like one-legged stools, like we've all lost some kind of appendage. And so there's not necessarily toxicity involved, but it's like we're all trying to um, mend ourselves by leaning on things that are also broken. And so it's how, like, how do we lean out into systems that can support us and, and trust fall, like back into these things that we know have a little bit more structure or sturdiness about them when we ourselves feel very broken. Um, and so to have something like that to lean out on is really powerful. It, it is. And I will credit, um, quite a bit. I, I remember, um, in second grade, uh, my cousin's death uh, was highly publicized, like it was all over the media. And I remember in, in, in that, just as I know now that kids do, and you just randomly tell people at the grocery store and whatnot, I hmm. um, remember telling my teacher and saying, yeah, like, oh, you heard about the, the, the child that died, that, that was my cousin. And her face was just like, okay, let's, what do you want to do? How can I help you? How can I, and it wasn't this pity, it was like, very action oriented um and her response to what what do you tell a seven-year-old um and to that I, I i guess i leaned out towards my teachers right um towards the other grown-ups in my life that weren't part of my nuclear family who were trying to put the pieces together of of what had just occurred but in the same regard um family is a is for for my family and, and and I've seen it quite a bit for our culture um, is a very strong strong part of who we are and and I'm not just talking about my parents it's my parents siblings and all of my cousins I, I when I say that we spent every holiday every weekend every day off from school together like we did it was ruckus everywhere i mean we're, we're all very close in age so and, and and another way it was also relying on support for one another and 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 to hearing the things that i know now aren't helpful when people um the adults in my life saying you need to be strong for your younger cousins because you're you're one of the oldest um and in the same time, seeing my grandmother, who had just experienced the death of her grandchild, who she, who she helped raise, never cry, not once. Um, why? Because she was trying to be strong as a matriarch for everyone else. And just this, this concept of we are being strong, like in the same regard, we are being strong for one another. We are leaning on our one leg uh, mm -hmm. together. Um, and everyone's trying to show up for each other. Like at, at no point was it, did it feel like, even my aunt who had experienced the death of her child as she is broken down and going through the world's unimaginable pain is still showing up for our birthdays and still being um, there with the birthday cake and still putting her face forward. Uh, and, and she shared this with me now of being strong for her child. So there's this concept of like, I need to be strong for everybody else in my life. And everyone's just trying to be strong for one, one another. Um, however healthy or unhealthy that is, um, there, that's what we did. And, and at that time, um, and looking back on it now, like I do, I wish there was a time for me to be able to process and, and actually 
explore those emotions. Absolutely. Um, especially given what I know now, but I, I think in the same regard, it was, it, it's when those moments come up in my life or when previously, when I was much older and reprocessing the death and exploring it through a new lens that I was able to understand, I guess, the emotional range that I had at that point, because what, what, would have then been mad, sad, or glad, became frustrated, numb, annoyed, um, broken, you know, whatever it is in that regard. And I think that just that lends itself to it in, in one way or another. But I definitely think that in 96, had we had um, an ability to of external support where each one of us would be able to process our own grief journey and not have to be strong for whatever that time period was. I mean, in one way or another, I think it would have been helpful. And, but I also think that this event, um, the death of my cousin made our family stronger or, or stronger in, in the, in the sense of the closeness, um, that, that occurred, that it bore out. And not, and not every family is fortunate in that regard either. It's, um, you know, death can either bring you apart, or sorry, bring you apart or bring you together. And so for us, it just really solidified the bonds of the family um, in that sense. That's really powerful. Um, and, a, and a neat insight because I think in my own world, I saw the crumbling of a family, uh, when a grief event came through and it's so different, um, to hear about a shared grief event being like, ah, this is more glue for as shitty as it is that this is the glue that we're all using to stick together in this. It's like, ah, this is something that continues to ground us and bind us and keep us, um, together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's kind of like uh, what we were speaking about earlier, where it's hard to imagine, um, anything different. And so you're like, yeah, you know, these resources to have in 1996 to be able to lean out into community resources or something like what you do at both place. And also because we only had the grief coping mechanisms that we did, this is how we turned out mm -hmm. for better, for worse. Yeah. Um, yeah. Really seeing some, some parallels there. Um, so how did you get from that grief experience in 1996 and kind of seeing what you did with your family to trying on all these new lenses and then eventually landing? at Bo's place and serving people in the Spanish community? Yeah, I will say, um, I found recently, so I, by training, am a clinical social worker now. Um, and recently, we, I was taking uh, a course on trauma, um, essentially working with people who have experienced some sort of trauma, and we were discussing trauma responses, and one of them being overachievement. And that just, it hit the nail on the head for me. I like my response to my grief, my response to this, um, my cousin, my cousin and my aunt's death was overachievement and, and just really devoting myself to studies. Um, so my entire, I guess, academic career, it was very much focused on, I need to be, I need to excel in this format. And it came naturally. So that, that helped um, for most of the part. And then when I, Made, uh, went to college, um, I, I was so determined to be a pediatrician because I was going to help people as uh, I think the majority of folks are like, yeah, I'm going to be a doctor. And then um, I, start, I took organic chemistry and I was like, no, I'm not going to be a doctor. That's not fun. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, no, um, 
And at the same time, I was taking an elective uh, on family relationships. And I was like, this is fascinating. Organic chemistry is not. So I started exploring what human development and family sciences was and fell in love with the, the profession itself. And within one of my courses, um, this is, it's such a weird way how, how things come full circle. I, there was a speaker that came to talk to us about potential jobs after college. And they flat out said, if you want to be guaranteed a job, become a social worker. And I was like, oh, okay, that sounds reasonable. I want a job, um, as most 20-year-olds do when they're in college. And so I started looking at gra uh, graduate programs and um, came back home to Houston for, for grad school. And then in grad school, I was on this whole, I'm going to be a medical social worker, I'm going to work in the in the medical center here, I'm going to help people in, in that regard, still kind of tying back to my dreams of being a doctor. So I need to get comfortable with grief, because that's part of what happens when you go to the hospital, people die sometimes. And so I took a grief and bereavement class uh, with an incredible professor of mine who became my mentor. Um, and it, as part of her class requirements, we had to go to Bo's place. So as a, as a graduate student, I went to Bo's place. I learned about children's grief, and I was like, this is an awesome place, and it's completely free of charge. That's incredible. So I kept it in my bank as a social worker. Following grad school, I started working in one of the hospitals uh, in the medical center, and it was great. Um, I was working in the neuro ICU and neurosurgery floor. I was doing many end-of-life discussions, and I realized that I was craving more of figuring out what happened once people discharge or once the families left that I had spent weeks, months working with to get to this point of saying goodbye to their person and then they died and then they would leave. And so just trying to figure out what did that mean? And my very good friend uh, had started working at Bo's place and sent me a job description of what seemed to be the perfect fit. And by what I consider a, uh, miracle in one way or another this place said absolutely we want you and that's kind of how that came full circle um in in that regard and so i joined both place in 2015 um starting the spanish programs were starting off and we um together with my good friend whom both place at the time did not know that we were really good friends and it just great creative energy worked um we were able to exponentially grow the program um and in five years i believe it's like our program grew by and i'll have to fact check this but i think it's like 425 percent in in five years it, it it grew and it just i i can i marvel now at the growth of our programs um but really knowing that there's there's a need um, that's present. And I've always believed um, if we offer it with intentionality, people will come because that's always a fear. And in, in when creating new programming is, is this what the community needs? And will they access what we're, what we're offering? Mm -hmm. And I always went back to if we're offering it with intentionality and it is a need that we've identified, it, it, the puzzle will fit and, and people will start to come and we have to get buy-in from the community. So much outreach occurred over the last couple of years, trying to get the community's buy-in to also show 
that we're consistent and we're present and we are committed to this. And so, um, I mean, COVID has kind of also um, brought to light a, a number of just facets of what this work brings because um, our entire model is based off peer support Right. And we're used to doing this in person. And so having to quickly transition to online and what that brings and learning how to lead groups online has been a, a challenge. But also um, it's it's this ever working, evolving. Creation, I guess, for lack of a better word, in that regard of trying to meet the needs of of our community. Um, when what we know that helps or assists and and supports the grief journey itself is being able to be supported by by people when we have implementations which we so need of physical distancing and not being able to see people it's it's bringing to light a different element of grief in and of itself. And, and what I'm hearing, what we've heard quite a bit is folks who were further along in their grief journey are calling us and saying, I thought I was okay, but COVID has made me realize how not okay I am. Um, and just trying to learn about that and navigate that and see how we can continue to support in through the virtual world, which brings uh, its own challenges. Yeah, totally. Because there is a grief in not being able to grieve physically together. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's something that COVID is definitely bringing to light. And it's, it's been interesting for the work that I do because much of it already exists online. And so for me, it's a lot of business as usual, but I can't tell you how many people I'm hearing, um, in my communities, podcast listeners emailing in being like, my grief support group had to shut down or is discontinued because this space is no longer safe or we can't meet in person or the next, the, I have to travel to the next county over and they're doing social distancing and I don't know if it's worth it. And so to restructure all of that um, around COVID has been incredibly hard for people too. Um, I want to um, touch on something you were, you were saying that, you know, we kind of test in the community or if we listen well enough, people will tell us the kind of support that they need. And so Spanish speaking programming for grief support kind of bloomed out of that um, to a huge increase. And I guess my biggest question, especially with your story earlier about like, you know, the storytelling of having to be strong for your younger relatives or so that the family will know you're okay. How do you reconcile this familial story of be strong with this place is available to you for support without that storytelling looking like one is strong and one is weak and there's a false choice between the two. Yeah. Um, I'll say one of my, uh, uh, what I will consider profound moments is when we tell people, when you come to group, right. Our, our groups, like actual group that you'll be in the, in the setting in the, in the sitting being able to share your story or support others is about an hour and 15 minutes and so what i, I will tell the grown-ups that i'm talking to the uh, usually the parents or the legal guardians of the kids is this is your hour and 15 minutes but you don't have to be you don't have to be superman or superwoman right because you have had to take on everything around you and be everything and anything to your to your child or in the same regard to your spouse 
And here's your hour and 15 minutes that you don't have to do that. We are taking, we have your kids, we're doing their, they're doing their grief work. Your spouse is doing their grief work if that's the case. But here's your time where it's to focus on you. And when I, I have phrased it in that way, when we have talked about it in a way that this is your individual grief journey, though grief is universal and we all, like as a collective family, are experiencing this grief. Each and every single person of the family had a unique relationship with the person who died and brings their own style of coping, brings their own personality to this journey. So we take, we take all that to say you have a space for you yourself to be with others who understand to some degree what it is that you're, that you're experiencing. So we'll try to put moms who've all experienced the death of a child in a group together and women who've all experienced the death of their spouse in a group together. And um, we, if we're lucky, we can split out our men's group. If not, if the numbers don't warrant it, then we'll have the men together because there's also a gender expectation for how mm -hmm. grief is managed, especially, um, oh, and I can speak to the, uh, the Latino or Latinx community it's, it's who I work with and, and what I see, but there's a gender norm of how you're supposed to be grieving. And so being able to put the men together, it will be one of the most powerful groups because it's this is the one time I don't have to be quote unquote strong. It's the one time I don't have to, I can show my emotion and not be judged about my manlyhood or how much I'm able to provide for my family by being able to be here and do that. So that's usually that's the take that we've taken with the community and trying to get their buy-in of like this isn't a weak or versus strong this is a, a time for you to be able to process what you're going through um what's also been helpful and one of the other areas is that we serve the entire family right um to some degree um our the youngest age that we work with is five so most often than not we'll get the parents in by serving their children so i'll uh, parents will 99% of the time say I'm here because of my of my children. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So while your kids are here, we also have support for you. And when it's a couple who have experienced the death of a child and they're coming with children, we'll have mom who will say, I'm coming here to support my children because of my kids. And then we'll have dad or the spouse say, I'm here to support my spouse. So everyone's there to support somebody else. And then the kids will enter and say, we're here because our parents, they need it. So it's every in the same way where everyone's trying to take care of one another because we're able to serve the entire family as is. Um, everyone's getting the support that they need and in turn supporting their other families by being there. So it's this like loop almost of how how we're we're being able to support the family individually and um as a unit and everyone's doing it for each other while still processing. Yeah, it's it's almost like a trickery of symbiosis. Yeah. It's like if I can make you think that you're here to support somebody else, but then you're actually getting help for yourself, but then that looks like supporting somebody else. Kind of this whole thing of like if I can tell you that story, we'll secretly actually help you work on your own grief too. And there's no malice or or deception or anything behind it. Um, but it's funny, it's like I'm coming with this intention, and then you're actually getting the your intention and another result as well. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like self 
self-care or self-maintenance in the grief space is like the bonus in addition to taking care of somebody else. Um, and I'm wondering too, like how, um, how closely tied to the Latino community is that sense of I'm not allowed to be selfish, but if I'm doing something in service of taking care of other people, namely my family, then I'll totally sign up. Um, absolutely. <laughs> One of the cultural values um, as is present throughout other cultures as well. But what we see within the Latino community is um, this value of pride, right? And this pride, I can take care of my family. That's also met with humility that says, if this will help my family, we'll do it. Whatever it takes to be able to help my family, we'll do it because I and my pride am responsible for taking care of my family. So it's this paradigm of what we tend to associate as complete opposites work within itself to be able to lean into the support that's being given um, or offered in one way or another. So, um, but it's, it's, it's very much at the core. If I, if I can do something for someone else, um, almost as a servant leadership, right? If I can, I will sacrifice my time to take my kids to be able to receive the support Then I can, I too am, being the leader of the family. Like this is what we need in that regard. So um, it's, as you were talking about the, that, that piece, I just hit the nail on the head for me of how so many interactions I've had of family saying like, we are doing this for everyone here. Um, and it turns into everyone trying to help each other. Like I'll have five-year-olds that will be like, my mommy cries all the time. So we're here because my mommy's crying all the time or my brother's not doing okay. So that's why we're here. So everything is for someone else in the family. Um, but it, and the bonus is that they get to process their own grief journey and learn coping skills that will help when their grief resurfaces. Or I won't say resurfaces when children are able to process their grief at a different developmental stage. Um, mm-hmm. so there's, it, the grief is there. It's just processed through a new, new lens because they have a new way of seeing the world at that time. Yeah. And I wonder, um, this is very different from the kind of grief support that's touted in like the white westernized space of like, you can individually get grief support for yourself. Um, and doesn't really, I mean, there are spaces that take into account like grief as a family, especially children's grief centers. Um, but for the most part, it's like you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, get your own grief support, find grief work that resonates with you, like very like <laughs> this kind of messaging. So it's, it's fascinating. And it's really, um, the word I want to use is like heartwarming too, is to see like, this is the way you found the doorway in uh, with the Latino community too, is I'm going to phrase it in a way where um, if I'm doing something for someone else, I'm totally signing up because this aligns with my values, my culture, how I see myself and my family. Um, and this kind of larger picture of what it means to be a leader in a family. Um, I'm wondering if there's any stereotypes or misconceptions about the ways that Latino people grieve that you'd like to dispel. Cause I think um, especially in the United States, we 
um, tend to put Latino people into a box. And so what we know about grief is like day of the dead and then nothing else. Um, And, and in some respects, it's like, okay, we know something, but in other respects, it's like, oh my gosh, there's so much more to know. There's so much depth and ancestry and and culture here that gets missed uh, in between the orange flowers and the music. Yeah. Um, Well, I will say though, uh, Coco, I, I, I feel like Pixar heard my, pleas and cries of how do we at least get the concept of Via los Muertos out to the world. And then Pixar came out with Coco, which is it's such a beautiful story of, of, of this holiday that ties so well in with grief work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, but to that extent, what's been really interesting has been trying to um, kind of push the envelope or not push the envelope, but further the conversation that, um, Day of the Dead or Dia de los Muertos, as it's as it's portrayed in Coco, is only celebrated in that way in a very small region, a very small town of Mexico. If you go anywhere else throughout Latin America, November first, which is uh, Day of the Dead or Dia de los Muertos or All Saints Day, or um, it, 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 I think All Saints Day might be the it looks completely different throughout Latin America. And generally there is this remembering of the people who have died um, of your family, but what, without the orange flowers and the mariachis and the papel picado or the altars and the ofrendas, um, it, it, each culture honors their person in a different way. But I, to that extent, I, I will say too, I mean, I, I am the first to say I absolutely love uh, Dia de los Muertos personally, but um, that has to be with my work. One of the misconceptions, I, I believe, and I've heard this often, where um, I'm told, you know, Latinos are very passionate. Um, you, there's, there's great. And I've talked about this in some of my previous talks of just the pride for our country, the pride for um, where you're from is really felt within the culture. But I, in the same regard, the the feeling of of not being able to express or there being a time limit right? within um, at least uh, some of the countries and their cultures of Latin America will see there's a, an expected time frame of how long you're, you're allowed to grieve, how long you're allowed to be sad. And it's usually one year. Anything further than a year, like you've lost it, you have, uh, for lack of a better term, you've gone crazy, you've lost your mind. How can you still be sad? It's been a year. This is ex- these are there are these grief expectations that exist that are st- that are currently we're trying to dismantle by saying, yeah, it's a year, but did you only know them for a year? Mm-hmm. Like, right. Um, and that you grieve to the extent that you loved and is your love measured in that time. And so to, to some extent, dismantling these expectations for reactions, right. Um, not all Latinos are going to cry passionately. Not all Latinos are going to well. And I think there's, there's those expectations that Latinos are very, explosive or, or expressive in their emotions and that that doesn't always occur but then within latinos for us it's this expectation of time 
um, and what's considered acceptable by society for how long you can wear black to to show to the world that you are still mourning um, and how long it's okay for you not to go to parties if that's the case or to to hear music or to celebrate in one way or another there are some cultures that, that within latin america that get that specific where it's like it's been six months sure you can you can go to a birthday party but before that you're disrespecting your the person who died and so um dismantling exp time expectations on one hand within latinos and then i think within to your original question of of the U.S. and just the perception. Um, Latino grief goes beyond just Dia de los Muertos, although great holiday, totally encourage everyone to watch Coco if you haven't already. Um, but within that, the ex uh, expressiveness of emotions isn't always um, the case with everyone. And it, it is this misconception that that's what you're going to get. Um, I'll say one of the things we at both place have been, I, I think, privileged to witness is this immense gratitude that our Spanish-speaking families have um, for the services that we provide, and so. It, it's it's not just like oh thank you so much because this is free it's um I, I think you you hit the nail on the head I, I think in the western world right we can absolutely i know this as as being born in the u.s too like i just go on google and say find therapist near me or find anything near me right like yelp exists for a reason we can find we can review and we know that that's a service that exists and oftentimes with our spanish-speaking communities there isn't this awareness or assumption that that's available and that it's going to be available in the language that I speak. And so being able to offer services in the language of their, that, that is common and, and comfortable, but ultimately the language of their heart that transcends emotion in that regard, um, we encapsulate or, or really their opportunity, uh, I won't say their opportunity, but we encapsulate this this movement of just gratitude and so we we've talked about it quite a bit at those places because my my colleagues who aren't latino or latinx will mark like you want to read some of the most beautiful quotes about our services go to our spanish-speaking families because they will write poems and dissertations about just what this means to them in ways that um our english-speaking families just don't and it's not and i think part of it is language like there's a benefit of your language being a romance language i think when you, being able <laughs> yeah to english is not sexy <laughs> <laughs> no but being able to just uh to put that into words it, it like absolutely it's it, it always makes me chuckle when our grants manager is uh, will ask like hey do you have any good quotes that i can that i can use for for some of our grant um request and i'll say yeah let me pull some up and they're like paragraphs i mean like legitimately three to four par uh, sentence paragraphs and they're all about like what grief support and what we've been able to offer has meant to them in their life and 
we usually stay back and we're like, wow, it's just, it's beautiful. And I could never, uh, I guess, uh, it never gets old to read in and, and the words of gratitude, which I will gladly sit there and, and read for hours, but just to see what it means to someone to be able to offer something in the language that they understand and they speak and to do it in, with great intentionality, that it doesn't just utilize Google Translate to translate our materials and then say, here you go, here's, here's what we got off of Google. Because um, I, know th I know that that happens in some areas because of funding, right? It's, it's hard to get services funded sometimes, um, but there has to be this commitment and this intentionality to working with this community um, and to do it thoughtfully, I think um, it, it's felt, and we all know that, right? If you intentionally go work on a project, it's gonna, you're gonna have a better product and outcome than if you just very quickly try to do something on the whim with limited resources. Yeah, I literally just wrote down, this is how much we care about the state of your heart. Mm -hmm. And so when you speak about intentionality, and at first I was like, ah, intention can be a dicey word of like, what did you mean to do when you set out when to do this and um, how the people who are receiving it actually absorb it and process it. But um, I think as I'm understanding and it, it's like we did this on purpose because it matters, because we've seen the results and because we've heard um, the cry of how great of a need that this is. And so the converse of that is like, you get these enormously grateful, like, thank you notes. And like, holy cow, I didn't realize how much this was needed or how it was going to change my life. And, and I think you're right that it um, would absolutely come through in a different way than people who speak English because there's English grief support everywhere. Um, yeah. And the internet is full of it. And there are grief support centers who, um, you know, put all their things through Google translate. And it's like, here you go. It's, it's something in Spanish, but to do it on purpose and to do it well and to have it, you know, funded and resourced and, and large enough to take care of the family as a unit. It's like, we, we mean it. Um, and that, that can be felt. I think that is something that translates very mm -hmm. highly across languages. It's like, we did this and we mean it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and I know we're getting to the end of our time, Christina. So I wonder if you can tell us uh, where we can find out more about you and your work and as well as if people want to get in touch with Bo's Place or any other uh, Spanish resources you'd like to recommend to. Yeah, of course. So um, your listeners can definitely, um, I said Google, but can go to www.thoseplace.org. We're also on, on Instagram and Facebook. And there, um, what's really neat about our website is that you literally click on the, I, I believe it's ESP, and our entire website's translated, not through Google Translate, but it's, it's translated. And everything that we have in English, we've intentionally attempted to offer it in Spanish. There are some parts that haven't been because we don't offer it yet, but there are tons of resources on our website and our resource library, parent handouts, um, both in English and Spanish, recommended readings for, just for folks who are looking to either support someone who's grieving or who are grieving themselves and just looking for the, what are the words. So I would encourage Encourage that route, and then for those not in Texas that were looking for additional support, there's a. Um, I'm also a board member for the National Alliance of Grieving Children. So through ChildrenGrieve.org, you can find local support in your community. Um, they have a really great interactive map that allows you to see just what grief support um, centers and members of the National Alliance of Grieving Children are in 
each state and broken down by cities from there. And so that's childrengrieve.org. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Christina, for joining us on Coming Back today. I think this is so important to um, even know that these conversations are happening in Spanish and then to elevate them too in the hopes that um, we have more of them. Yeah, super important. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so very much to Christina Cipriano for coming on Coming Back to talk about the importance of grief support in the language of the heart and why it's so important to support not only the grieving individual, but the family as a whole. Christina came back by examining what it means to be strong for others in grief and by leaning on her teachers and other trusted confidants. You can find out more about Spanish language grief support at Bo's place in the show notes, and there are links there to the Spanish and English websites both. Be sure to pre-order my new book, Your Grief, Your Way, 366 Days of Comfort and Practical Exercises After the Death of a Loved One Now, wherever you buy books. For the link to purchase, as well as your invitation to an exclusive book launch party on September 29th, click the link in the show notes. And be sure to stay tuned after the credits for an excerpt from the book. If you'd like to get online grief support for just $3 a month, pledge to support this podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash Shelby Forsythia. You will instantly unlock access to weekly grief guidance prompts and monthly calls with me. And our next call is coming up on Monday, October 26th at 5 p.m. Pacific time. If you like what you heard today, you know I'm going to say it. Subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and please tell a friend about Coming Back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you so much to Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me at Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I am so proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of Coming Back. Now, check out the September 23rd entry from my new daily grief book, Your Grief, Your Way. September 23rd. Death is not the opposite of life, but a part of it. Haruki Murakami. Especially in westernized society, there's a toxic narrative that equates death with failure, punishment, and negativity. Death equals bad, life equals good. We frame death as a failure to win against a disease or diagnosis. We punish wrongdoers with the death penalty, and we sell and market ways to prolong life via workouts, diet plans, and medications. However, death is woven into life, just like birth is woven into life. When we fold death into the experience of life, instead of making it life's adversary, we are able to see it as a normal experience that happens instead of an awful nightmare that is brought upon us by some malevolent force. Death is not a failure to live. It is a natural occurrence knitted into every single one of our lives. 
If this entry resonated with you and your grief, pre-order Your Grief, Your Way now, wherever you buy books. For more information, including your invitation to an exclusive book launch party on September 29th, visit shelbyforsythia.com. I'll see you next week. I'm coming back.